You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City, and I'm joined today by a special guest, but a familiar face on the show. Uh, we're very glad to have uh, Aman Tucker back on the show. Aman, how's it going today? Good, Ankit. Thanks so much for having me back on. Pleasure to have you. So Aman, uh, for listeners who might not know, uh, was a writer for the Diplomat South Asia section. He still contributes occasionally. Uh, but Aman, uh, tell us a little bit about what you're working on these days. Sure. So I'm uh, currently wrapping up my master's at uh, the University of Oxford. I'm at St. Anthony's College here. Uh, I'm trying to understand how we can apply the concept of grant strategy to India, which is going to be my, uh, my thesis while I'm here. I'm also uh, simultaneously an adjunct fellow with the Center for Strategic and International Studies with the Wadwani Chair in U.S.-India Policy Studies there to focus a lot of work on the U.S.-India strategic relationship and on India's domestic reform agenda. Uh, so that's sort of where my research interests lie. Perfect. Well, um, that's that's all great. And, you know, I'm really happy to have you on the show today. Uh, as listeners can probably tell based on Amon's biography, what we're going to be talking about today is, of course, U.S. President Donald Trump's first visit to India. Uh, Trump becomes the fourth consecutive U.S. president to visit New Delhi um, and Ahmedabad in this case, uh, the home state, uh, the capital of the home state of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi's uh, Gujarat. Um, and there's a lot to talk about. Uh, the visit was really you know, I think people had many different expectations. You had sort of the more skeptical crowd that expected Trump to potentially commit some kind of major gaffe and potentially reveal the, the fissures that are really underlying the U.S.-India relationship today. And then the more optimistic crowd that expected things to really remain on the rails. And I'd say we ended up somewhere in between, probably a little bit more towards what the optimists were expecting. I mean, you know, um, we'll take stock of the overall visit, but, you know, I think it's also important to contextualize it uh, for on the U.S. side, at least for Trump. I mean, this is the first major overseas trip that the U.S. president's gone on since he survived a very acrimonious impeachment trial. Um, certainly, President Trump and his base are looking forward to a general election later this year in November. And many of the visuals that came out of this India trip, I think, are going to be part of President Trump sort of presenting himself as a global statesman. Uh, certainly, I think we saw that in uh, the president's own Twitter feed. Uh, while he was in India, uh, they published a video of the event that occurred on the first day of his visit on Monday uh, when he spoke to a crowd of over 100,000 in a cricket stadium in Ahmedabad at an event called Namaste Trump, which was, of course, India's reciprocity for the Howdy Modi event that took place in September 2019 during Narendra Modi's trip to the United States uh, for the UN. Of course, that event, the Howdy Modi event in the U.S., was hosted by an Indian-American organization, whereas Namaste Trump was reciprocated officially by the Indian government. Um, but maybe, you know, Aman, like before we get into the nitty gritty of the discussions and talk about defense and trade and all of the uh, ins and outs of, um, you know, the nuts and bolts of the U.S.-India relationship, um, what are your sort of overall expectations? I mean, do you think um, my assessment is sort of fair that we basically ended up on the more optimistic side of things or, or do you have a different assessment of, of how the trip went? I mean, I, I agree with you and I think that we definitely ended up on the optimistic side of things, but I think it's fair to say that the optimistic side of things, the bar was set kind of low for this trip. I mean, no gaffe, uh, you know, after the, there was no trade deal. It was just, you know, I, I saw some people saying that just Trump getting on the flight and committing himself to a 15 hour flight to Ahmedabad was a major deliverable. Um, I, I mean, I'm careful here because you know, there is a discussion within sort of the policy space about are we putting too many expectations on the U.S.-India relationship and are we expecting too much out of India at a place when it can't deliver? But I do think that, you know, when we were talking about what sort of the optimist vision is of this trip, 
Uh, it was sort of like, okay, he won't bring up anything that embarrasses uh, India. He won't sort of, you know, do any, uh, he won't have a gaffe. Uh, that's a bit of a low bar. And I, I, I sort of recognize that, you know, this trip was after the trade deal fell apart, mostly high on optics. And in that sense, you know, the both sides walked away with a lot to to take back to their constituencies. Right, right. And I think the optics, you know, I mean, when it comes to summits like these, uh, you usually want to have a couple deliverables. And I'd say they mostly did that. Uh, you know, Trump gave a speech that really any of his predecessors, going back to George W. Bush, could have given in India. Uh, he stayed on the teleprompter during the Namaste Trump speech. I mean, again, very low bar here, but it's never a given that Donald Trump will actually you know, stick to his teleprompter remarks. Right. Um, I mean, he delivered a speech that included, uh, you know, in included references even to India's um, pluralistic and syncretic uh, religious traditions, which I thought was quite interesting. You wouldn't really expect that from Trump. I mean, in, uh, you know, we can, for example, recall his speech in 27 in Warsaw, Poland, where he very much took a clash of civilizations message. And then yet again, you know, here he is in India, as of course, and we'll talk about this a little bit, but of course, um, you know, very unfortunately coinciding with Trump's trip to India, um, New Delhi, uh, the Indian capital saw some of the most um, intense uh, Hindu and Muslim violence uh, that's been seen in the capital in decades. Um, but right. coming at that time, you know, I mean, Trump delivered the speech that was sort of surprising. I mean, it was surprising to me that that was included in Trump's speech. Uh, you never know with his overseas remarks, he's really kind of run the gamut between taking a very kind of blood and soil nationalism, America first message overseas. But here it was a very conventional speech in many ways. Um, and, you know, other people were also taken aback by the fact that the president um, directly mentioned, for example, the quadrilateral initiative with Japan, Australia, uh, alongside India and the U.S. Uh, as far as I know, that's the first time President Trump's directly included that in a speech. Um, so I think some observers took that as a as a sign that um, the relevance of India in the broader U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy continues to be quite high. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think on the Indian side, um, certainly I think India will view this trip as largely successful. If you look at the broader uh, you know, story of U.S.-India relations going back at least 15 years to 2005 and the nuclear deal, but maybe going back even to 2000, um, the, the trend line remains positively linear, right? I mean, things are things remain on track. Of course, there are, I think, structural concerns in the U.S.-India relationship. I mean, so trade is actually, I think, one of the more familiar irritants in the U.S.-India relationship, right? It's an, it's an irritant mm -hmm. in a different way under the Trump administration, but certainly previous administrations have also struggled with India on trade issues. We have some new issues, including India's um, decision to sit out the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, um, but certainly trade disputes aren't aren't a new thing. Um, but maybe let's talk a little bit about trade. I mean, we had some reports before the summit that uh, Robert Lighthizer was supposed to go to India. He didn't go, and then sort of the trade deal fell apart. But the joint statement between Trump and Modi indicated that they would work towards a phase one deal, eventually leading to a comprehensive trade deal. So what's your sense on the state of play right now between the U.S. and India on trade? Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's it's definitely one of those things that has become a major point in in this relationship. I mean, if you look at as you were saying, uh, it's always been an issue, but with this president in particular and his focus on both the U.S.'s global trade deficit and with specific partners that he thinks uh, are so-called ripping us off, you know, he's he's sort of taken a laser focus on on the deficit in India, one of the few countries. I mean, it also has a massive deficit with the world. But India, one of the countries that actually has a surplus is with the United States. And so that's become a, a, a big sort of flashpoint. And both sides have really taken their fair share of protectionist measures. 
you know, India under Prime Minister Modi has really, you know, when he came into office, uh, the consensus really was that he might continue India's, you know, liberalization uh, that has been going on since 1991, but really actively, at least since 2017-18, the Prime Minister and his government have been steadily increasing tariffs. if you go back to the budget announcement this year, earlier this month, this is the fourth time I think that this uh, government has raised tariffs. So did it once in the 2017 uh, budget, did it once again in September 2017. Uh, in response to GSP, they raised tariffs against the U.S. and now again for a fourth time. Uh, so that's a really sort of worrying trend on the Indian side of you know continuously raising tariffs after over 20 years of liberalization. And then on the U.S. side, too, I mean, steel and, uh, you know, uh, steel and aluminum, uh, that's something where the president of the United States singled out much, you know, uh, uh, the rest of the world, really. But in those industries really hit out on India, taking away the generalized system of preferences, which is this sort of one way benefit that the United States offers to developing countries uh, to allow them to grow, uh, taking away those benefits. And India was, in fact, the largest beneficiary under that program. Uh, and so, you know, both sides have really taken their fair share of protectionist steps. And this was really a moment uh, to try and uh, resolve some of those differences. We had one moment earlier when, uh, as you said, the prime minister went to the United States in September, and there was a similar rush to get a deal signed. And I know Commerce Minister Piyush Goyal actually made a trip out to the United States. That didn't work out. Then they said, OK, we'll try again when President Trump goes to India. Again, Lighthizer was supposed to go out, cancel his trip because of the differences that ended up. And I mean, depending on who you talk to in India, they were actually really close to a deal. You know, I'm hearing things that India actually caved on agriculture and actually the differences emerged on a lot of the digital space issues. India's new regulations on e-commerce, making it more difficult for foreign e-commerce companies to work, uh, as well as data localization issues were really the sticking point. Whereas agriculture, which has been the traditional issue, it was actually maybe possible that India was willing to uh, make a concession there in order to reach some kind of a phase one deal. So uh, I don't know after two times and two times going in this go around whether a third time a deal can be reached. Uh, I don't know if there's a summit anytime else in the future. So, you know, getting that kind of momentum going again when there's a leader level summit, that's an opportunity you don't want to lose. And having lost it twice, um, the thing that I take away from it is, you know, I mean, these are really much more intractable issues. And so uh, I guess uh, the the main hope is now that the policy steps that we've taken don't start to bleed over into the actual trade, which has surprisingly been growing. 5% growth in U.S.-India trade over the last year, despite all of these steps being taken. Uh, but at some point, you have to imagine that the policy steps will leak over and, and affect actual day-to-day trade. And that's what we don't want to see happen. Right. Yeah. And I think um, this language in the joint statement of... Um a phase deal and a comprehensive deal, you know, kind of similar to the China playbook, really, I think suggests that they're uh, they're going to end up devising, uh, dividing this issue up. I mean, I've heard the same thing uh, as you have about the proximity to a deal. So hopefully they will be able to conclude a deal on some of the, you know, lower hanging fruit issues, or at least issues where India's already caved to U.S. demands. And then where India really has red lines, I think that will take much longer. And it's actually, you know, that deal might not even happen before the U.S. election. So again, mm-hmm. I think uh, there's a lot of uncertainty there for India as well. So, you know, one of the major differences between Trump's trip to India and the other presidential visits to India since um, by U.S. presidents since 2000 is, of course, this 
major public event uh, where Trump spoke to, you know, over 100, uh, over 100,000 people. What'd you make of the Namaste Trump event? I mean, I, I, I already shared a little bit about what I thought, but I'd love to hear uh, your kind of overall impression of that event and, and what you think it did for, I guess, what it did for Trump and what it did for Modi. Yeah, I mean, this event was really, I think, uh, important for two reasons. One was, I think, to highlight the personal chemistry that these leaders have and that they want to project to the world. Uh, so, you know, following the Howdy Modi event in Texas, you know, the prime minister saying, this is a friend of mine, I want to reciprocate and have him speak to my uh, home state uh, in the, you know, in, the, in where he sort of got his uh, political career uh, you know, sort of catapulted into national sort of uh, uh, his national sort of career. That's sort of you know a, a good sort of good deliverable for him to give to what he would consider a personal friend or uh, you know a friend on the world stage. And that's something that you know you really saw highlighted in both of their remarks to uh, to the public, to the uh, attendees in the audience. But I think also a big sort of important symbol was for the people to people ties. You know, Gujarat, I think the statistics were that one third of all Indian immigrants to the U.S. find some trace or route to Gujarat. And so highlighting those people to people ties, the fact that the U.S. and India are having this longstanding relationship of people that go over there, find some success. Even in U.S. businesses increasingly coming over. The last statistics that I read is that one million people in India are employed by some U.S. business. So highlighting those people to people ties are also... I think a really important step, and that's something that came out of uh, out of this uh, out of this event. But really, I mean, this was a this was a great thing to do for the optics of the event. I mean, once you sort of look away that you don't have a trade deal, and you know, we can talk about some of the deliverables that came out of the the meeting. But this is really sort of the thing that they were billing as going to be the most important centerpiece of of uh, the of the uh, of the visit. And in that sense, I mean, it was uh, it, it reached the mark. It actually exceeded expectations. I mean, people uh, sort of walk away from this knowing that uh, at least India can walk away from this knowing that this was this event went off without a hitch. Uh, the president felt very welcome. He got to see the Taj Mahal. He got to go to the Sabarmati Ashram. Uh, he got to address a, a big crowd, which he loves to do and has spent a lot of his term in office doing. That's where he sort of feels at home. Uh, and so really in that sense, it is a, a good takeaway to, to take home. Um, but it really, from my sense, it, it does something for the relationship, but without substance, you really can't just depend on events like this to drive the relationship forward. Right. This can carry you forward for a little bit and it can do something at a time when you can't reach a trade deal and you haven't got much else in the deliverable pipeline, but we can't revolve, you can't you know, re revert to sort of just doing big events and not really having the substance to actually make this, as both sides call it, a global strategic partnership. Right. Uh, that's something that, you know, we're, we're still waiting to see how both sides can come to this and do things that uh, then make this relationship go forward. Yeah, no, I think I think the crowd size issue, I think, is actually quite important. I mean, Trump was expecting seven million people, which is less yeah. than the population of Ahmedabad. But certainly for a president that, you know, if we think back to the beginning of Trump's presidential term, we spent the first week of his presidency talking about his inauguration crowd size. Right. So the fact that yeah. India was able to deliver 100,000 100, people plus, I think actually did, you know, did actually 
leave Trump feeling quite satisfied. He talked about how well he was received in India. You know, no one should tell him that Eisenhower once addressed a crowd of a half million in India. Um, uh, and when India had a much smaller yeah, population, but, uh, when you know, tweeted that out, I was like, Oh no, don't, don't let him see that because, uh, the moment he sees half a million, he's going to want that himself. But, exactly. Uh... Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, also for India, I mean, you know, I have to say like for new Delhi, it seems like right now, um, with everything that India is doing, uh, since the last general election, uh, the May 2019 general election, um, you know, all the internal overhaul that's been happening with Kashmir, the Citizenship Act, uh, the internal instability in Assam and the Northeast. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we're actually doing this, po- we're taping this podcast on the one year anniversary of the Balakot strikes. Trump actually did reference, you know, stability in South Asia being a goal. For India, in many ways, it's, it's less about moving the relationship with the U.S. forward in a measurable way, but it's more about managing Trump and sort of keeping a lid on things, right? I mean, even if we talk about the personal chemistry between Modi and Trump, and it was positive, right? I mean, you can just ask, you know, Shinzo Abe and Xi Jinping, I mean, how how far personal chemistry with Trump goes, or even Kim Jong-un, uh, right? So, I mean, ultimately, personal chemistry does help. But really, I think for India right now, the goal is to keep the U.S. on India's side in, in a way that can actually help India manage its internal affairs and its neighborhood on its own terms with U.S. support, right? So last year, I mean, the U.S. was quite supportive of India during the Balakot strikes, uh, basically with a former national security advisor, John Bolton, speaking to his Indian counterpart, Ajit Doval, and, uh, you know, giving kind of the U.S. as assent to uh, whatever India was going to do, you know, in the readout from MEA. Um, Bolton was um, reported to have said that, you know, the U.S. recognizes India's right to self-defense. So more those sorts of issues, I think, are really at the top of the Indian agenda in the short term. Um, But, you know, uh, that being said, let's talk a little bit about geopolitics and I guess the big deliverable, which uh, is this one uh, defense deal that's come out of uh, the trip for um, for a set of uh, military helicopters mounting to um, three billion along with uh, other equipment. Um, geopolitically, of course, there's, I think, a big backdrop to Trump's trip to Asia, um, to South Asia at this point, which is the impending deal in a few days um, with the Afghan Taliban. Right now, we're in a succession of hostilities that's supposed to lead to a signing of the deal on Leap Day of, on February 29th. And um, certainly, I think within that context, uh, his trip to India becomes quite apparent. And of course, you know, he actually had some pretty, you know, he spoke about Pakistan, both at his um, at, the, at the Namaste Trump event and during his press conference with Modi on the second day. And he wasn't necessarily acerbic or particularly bitter. He talked about, you know, the relationship with Pakistan is quite good and we're working on sort of cracking down on terrorist organizations and militants that operate on the Pakistani border. Of course, that's, you know, music to uh, music to Indian ears uh, saying that uh, an American president saying that in New Delhi. Um, but broadly speaking, I think that context uh, really merits um, f- a, a focus here. I think the Trump administration has made it clear that it would like to see India play a more proactive role in in South Asian security, including in Afghanistan. Um, so what did you make of uh, the sort of geopolitical and uh, defense deliverables out of out of this trip? Yeah, uh, so that's actually a really good context to sort of have because, you know, you are right that this trip came in at, at sort of a particularly interesting time when they announced this, this deal. So yeah, first on the helicopters, I mean, this again signals about how India is increasingly moving. I mean, it understands what Trump's wants, right? It's it's stadium crowds and defense deals. And so you're right that in the in the sense of managing uh, sort of the personality that comes with President Trump's administration, they figured out what it is that the administration and particularly the president likes to see come out of these events, or out of these summits. And they, they teed it up perfectly for him in the sense of giving him a big stadium spectacle, then taking him to Delhi and saying, we're going to buy 3 billion in equipment. 
but I think also it, it makes sense for India to invest in these. I mean, these are helicopters. Uh, to speak tactically, I mean, these are uh, anti-sub helicopters, which again signal India's growing interest in playing this role in the Indian Ocean and increasing skepticism of the one country that we know is having sub operations in the Indian Ocean, which is China. Uh, so that's, again, something that signals quietly to the rest of us how India is shaping up and purchasing equipment that would make it uh, more ready going into, uh, you know, going into changing geopolitical environment in the, in the Indian Ocean. But again, again, going now from maritime to continental, I mean, this is something that on Afghanistan, India has been working and, and, and grappling with. And that's something that, you know, I've been trying to study up here and, and for readers that uh, haven't already read this book, but I'm currently, I just started Avinash Paliwal's great book, My Enemy's Enemy, which, you know, talks about the history of Indian relations with Afghanistan and particularly the, uh, the intelligence relationship the two of them have. I thought it was very interesting, you know, that uh, President Trump said that he had the press conference afterwards, uh, after the joint statement, he had the solo press conference that he gave and said, you know, one of those things where we want India to play a bigger role in Afghanistan. We want, um, you know, we've done enough. We fought ISIS and we've killed Baghdadi. So, you know, India can take a bigger role here in South Asia when he was asked a question about cross-border terrorism. Um, and, you know, here I kind of, uh, you know, sometimes agree with the, the stance that Sirajamohan uh, Jamoan has about, you know, when he puts out his op-eds on, uh, on India's Afghanistan policy, which is that, yeah, we have to be able to deal with changing requirements of the great power. You know, when the United States no longer wants to make a commitment to Afghanistan and it's important to our security, India will have to step up and, and figure out how it's going to deal with the vacuum. Uh, it was never, you know, it was the fact that the United States is here should not be taken as a granted. They were always going to leave at some point or the other. And, and that this president, uh, he wants to get these troops home, even if it means that it will affect the situation on the ground. You've seen that in Syria. You've seen that in Iraq. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't have a particular penchant of, you know, caring about what the situation looks like after he's gone, as long as he gets the troops home and he can tell his base that he's ending ending the wars that he promised he would end. So how India starts to respond to to this is, you know, really going to require uh, a, a mentality shift, which is, you know, okay, something that we've taken for granted that the United States is going to be here and is going to ensure that we leave Afghanistan more stable and uh, make sure that there's a, a strategy in place for the government to govern after they're gone. Right now, that may not happen, and and that affects India's security, and so India has to figure out how that happens. Um, I think we'll have to wait and see what what comes out of this and what India decides to do. Um, but, you know, it is sort of something that India increasingly has to grapple with, especially under this administration. And if we can be frank, throwing their lot in with uh, with Trump, I mean, we could talk about, again, the frank bi uh, the bipartisan consensus. But, you know, uh, as you said, they're very happy to ha engage Trump on these issues as long as he doesn't say anything about what's going on within India's borders. And he's been very happy not to say anything about Kashmir, not to say anything about CAA, not to say anything about the protests. Uh, and so they seem to have thrown in their lot with him and hoping, you know, upkeep our Trump's car that he comes back to office. If that's the case, well, they also have to grapple with the downside of it, which is that he may not do what they want on Afghanistan and they have to figure out what 
their strategy looks like. Right, right. No, actually, so that's a that's a perfect segue. Uh, and for listeners, by the way, if you're interested in the Afghanistan situation, we do have another podcast scheduled uh, for later this week, potentially releasing next week on the nitty gritty of how we got to this deal with the Taliban. Of course, the deal hasn't happened yet. Still questions about whether it will materialize. Uh, of course, a lot can happen in, I guess, the 72 hours that remain before uh, the leap day deadline from the time we're recording this. Um, but yeah, actually, Iman, that is where I want to end um, on kind of the fraying bipartisan consensus, as you put it. Uh, so a feature of the U.S.-India relationship uh, going back at least 15 years, even a little longer, has been the very strong and rather immovable bipartisan consensus uh, until recently. Um, and of course, a lot of the risk-taking that India has been doing uh, internally, certainly in 2019, big year of risk-taking from uh, you know, everything from the anti-satellite test to the uh, Balakot strikes to the changing of Kashmir status internally to um, the Citizenship Amendment Act and the National Register of Citizens implementation in Assam. Um, all of that together, I think, has created a picture of India that is starting to permeate um, parts of the American political establishment, certainly um, the Democratic side of the aisle where there is a greater concern about issues like human rights, right? So obviously Trump, I think it's very natural that Trump wouldn't say anything about these things. I mean, you know, he's been happy to talk to the Philippines and not talk about Duterte's drug war and extrajudicial killings. So hard for me to imagine him uh, taking an interest in uh, many of these issues in India, especially uh, given the perception of the Modi government uh, and the RSS, uh, the parent organization of the BJP, sort of leveraging Hindu nationalist forces to take on Muslims. You know, we can, of course, talk about President Trump's uh, own perceived animus towards Muslims. And, uh, you know, it's really not something that the administration in the United States has given a lot of attention to, unless, uh, you know, it's sort of being opportunistic and talking about China and Xinjiang and, and the Uyghurs, of course, which I think is the exception uh, there. But yeah, when it comes to India, uh, that's really, I mean, the context, I mean, it doesn't get more stark with Trump being in New Delhi, sort of shaking hands with Modi, uh, the Namaste Trump event happening in Ahmedabad. And of course, at the same time, you have these massive communal riots, horrifying images coming out of New Delhi of mosques being put under siege. Um, this all raises questions. I mean, you know, as you, as you said, India seems to be making a bet that Trump will be reelected and India will continue to enjoy a continuing upward trajectory with the United States, sort of a, rec a continued recognition of its indes indispensability in the Indo-Pacific region as a counterbalance to China. And the United States will say nothing about Indian internal issues, including Kashmir and the treatment of Muslims. If a Democrat is elected, and right now it looks like the front runner is on the left side of the party's flank, Bernie Sanders, many of Bernie Sanders' surrogates in Congress, including Congresswoman Pramila Jaipal, have actually been quite vocally critical of the Modi government on many of these issues. If Bernie Sanders wins, for example, in November, that's a very different kind of expectation that New Delhi has to prepare for. Uh, so it's it's a dangerous bet, um, and it's certainly not the kind of bet that previous Indian governments have been willing to make. The previous Indian governments haven't been willing to take the kind of risks that the Modi 2.0 administration has. I mean, certainly, I think even if we look at the 2014 iteration of the Modi government, you know, the uh, the narrative was quite different. Uh, you know, this was Modi being elected as sort of being given the benefit of the doubt by uh, the West in many ways, that even despite his legacy in Gujarat, including his complicity or refusal to condemn the violence in 2002, uh, that Modi would focus on economic revitalization. And that appeared to be true for a bit, but now it seems like the party is doubling down on Hindu nationalism as uh, economic indicators start to flag. So what's your uh, what's your assessment of, uh, you know, what we can uh, look forward to in the U.S.-India relationship? 
Yeah, first of all, you know, we can start with the violence in Delhi. I mean, it's one of the most disturbing and, and horrifying acts of violence that we've seen. You know, some of the videos coming out of uh, people going up on mosques and, change, and you, know, you know, pulling down the loudspeaker and, and putting up uh, saffron flags or Indian flags and the videos that have come out of, you know, police officers sometimes being complicit, sometimes standing by while people... Out, you immediately start judging people that look like Muslims or asking them to say uh, whether they're Muslim or not. I mean, it's 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 uh, very sad to see as someone who's an Indian citizen and that happening in uh, in Delhi. And it's it's hard not to draw the line. I mean, you know, you can say whatever you want about how this started or who's to blame for it, but it's 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 hard for me to not draw the line between statements that are said by BJP leaders the day before violence comes out and then the next day violence happens. That happened with Anurag Thakur going out and making a speech about you know shoot the traitors, Goli Malosar, uh, you know all of that stuff, and then the next day a man with a gun shows up and the police stands idly by while he shoots someone in the crowd. Uh, just you know days before, one day before the violence began in Delhi, Kapil Mishra of the BJP goes out and says, "Let's teach them a lesson. Uh, let's go out there and 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 you know show them what we are." And then the violence begins. I mean, you can you can find some convoluted reasons about why the BJP is not to blame for this, but Akhil's Razor always holds that when these leaders speak, they have to take you know, ownership of their words. Um, but going, you know, from from what's happening right in the local of Delhi to the to the bipartisan relationship, I mean, this is absolutely right. I, you saw, I think Elizabeth Warren was the first one that made a statement about uh, the violence in Delhi you know, last night, uh, as President Trump, uh, you know, was mid-flight back from uh, from India. You've seen Bernie Sanders not be afraid. He, you know, when when President Trump was giving his speech, he put out a tweet saying, "We should be working with India." On climate change and not on defense deals and has made us, you know, wrote an op-ed for the Houston Chronicle while uh, Howdy Modi was happening, talking about the shutdown in Kashmir and calling for that to end. So you have seen, you know, and, and, and this is not, uh, as as people in India would say, and you know, they might complain that this is, you know, the great power, the great policemen coming and telling us how to run the internal affairs of a country. We've had, we don't want white people telling us how to run our country. And uh, fair point that, you know, India has a, uh, has a history of, you know, and a, a legitimate fear of uh, what happens when people lecture to them and complain to them. But this is not what this is. This is uh, a friendship and a partnership that we, uh, India and the United States, both have entered into. And it's, it's the job of friends to tell them when things aren't going right. And that's what one side of the aisle seems to be doing, that, you know, it's it's not just about Western values or just about, you know, American being a policeman saying that communications lockdown shouldn't happen in Kashmir. It's a it's the wrong thing to do. You shouldn't lock down six million people in Kashmir and deny them internet access. You shouldn't be locking up politicians and detaining them uh, and and putting draconian you know laws such as the unlawful uh, uh, unlawful activities prevention act and and you shouldn't be uh, passing legislation that fast tracks uh, citizenship for only one for all but one specific religious community. Uh, those are all uh, not. Uh, you know, upholding the liberal values that India claims to proclaim on the world stage and not to self-promote, but that's something that, you know, my last piece with the diplomat was about that. The Prime Minister Modi has gone around the world, especially in his speeches about foreign policy, and directly himself drawn the line that we uphold freedom, openness, and inclusivity at home. So it's time to create a, uphold a, you know, liberal international order that is free, open, and inclusive, especially creating a free, open, and inclusive Indo-Pacific. 
And there's two choices. One, that India has to come out and say, we don't believe in these values anymore, in which case, you know, that has its own can of worms because a, a big part of the U.S.-India relationship is built on shared values. Or we start to put, you know, those values in action at home. Uh, and that's something the, the latter is what I what I think that the government should move towards. And if you have a commitment to those values, it's only right that the uh, Amer the entire American establishment, but as of right now, at least one wing of the American establishment tells you to or asks you to uphold those values. And, and I think uh, risking the U.S.-India relationship uh, by saying, you know, we'll just work with the side of the American political establishment that doesn't care about values so that we can continue to do what we want inside and have a strategic partnership on the outside. That's a bet that you can make. But as you said, that's a very risky bet. And India needs to play out how the scenario goes through because it's not unlikely that a Sanders presidency is, is, uh, is possible. It's not unlikely that Elizabeth Warren becomes president. It's not unlikely that Joe Biden becomes president. And I think all of these people will care about what India does internally and, and ask it that it upholds its values, that it proclaims outside of India, within India. Uh, and so uh, I don't think this is even about the U.S.-India relationship to an extent, but about what India should be doing and the very important foil that India has to China and Asia that, you know, uh, I one of the things that I pointed out is this is giving free ammunition to China. You've seen, um, you know, uh, Chinese outlets are talking about why they can defend their actions in Xinjiang because of what India is doing in terms of Internet lockdowns and and internet shutdowns in Kashmir. And and I really, as some, again, as someone who's an Indian citizen and someone who cares about seeing India's place in the world, I don't want to see that comparison being made. And we're just handing ammunition over uh, to detractors of the free, open, inclu inclusive Indo-Pacific vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, that's, uh, that's just something that um, I think India should be more responsive to, should recognize that this is the concern of a friend and a partnership that they've invested 15 to 20 years in and not just what they think uh, is, you know, a, a Western country telling them how to run things. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, there is the potential for domestic politics in India to also play a role here. I mean, you know, maybe this is a little too optimistic, but I mean, one of the, you know, one of the most powerful political forces in India tends to be anti-incumbency, especially when the economy is not doing too well. And uh, despite the, uh, of course, you know, the BJP put up an incredible result in the general elections last year. But um, if you look at the regional picture, uh, regional parties, state parties are beginning to push back. Of course, India doesn't have a national opposition really to speak of in the form of the Congress party. But, um, you know, I've I've learned that it's best not to uh, treat Indian politics as too predictable. I mean, yes, the next general election is still four years away. Um, but I think um, if current trends continue, um, it's uh, it's not necessarily a given also that the BJP will be able to maintain the sort of dominance that it's enjoyed for the last year or so. Uh, so things are, um, I think, going to be in flux. But certainly, I think the U.S.-India relationship is opening an interesting new chapter. And I think that's going to be true even if Trump is reelected. Uh, India is a, you know, for better or worse, India is throwing its weight around more than it has in the past in in the Indo-Pacific region, in its relationship with the United States. Uh, and I think that is manifesting in, in some really interesting ways. So, yeah, no, I think, uh, I think you've um, sort of put things really well. We're going to have to really keep an eye on this and... Uh, see where things go, um, especially uh, later this year with the uh, with the U.S. elections. Um, anyways, Juan, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But thanks a lot for uh, making the time to join me on the podcast today to talk about the U.S.-India relationship. Well, thanks for having me on. This was, uh, this was great. Thanks for all your questions and, and hope uh, 
listeners uh, take away something from this. Right. Uh, so for our listeners, uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers out there. And if you have been a listener for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please do that. We really appreciate that. It also helps new people find the show. Um, so please do leave us a review. We really do appreciate those. And finally, before we close, a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.